You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to another episode of Crime of the Mitten. We're your hosts, Shelby and Alia. What better way to gush about crimes without raising eyebrows than to start a podcast on crimes committed in our home state, Michigan? From mysterious missing cases to gruesome murders that left police struggling to stay on the scene, we're giving you the complete insight on what's going on in our mitten state. If you need to satisfy your hunger for true crime cases as much as we do, tune in every Sunday for your weekly dose of mitten crimes. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about a missing case that has been going on for almost a decade now, dealing with three little boys from Marinci, Michigan. After all the years passing by and with little to no success in finding these boys, there's one man who could bring closure on what really happened to the Skelton brothers, and that is John Skelton, the boy's father. Before we really get into things, I want to take the time out to talk about the boys because from doing my research, I fell in love with these bo- these three boys as if they were my own little brothers. And to be honest, I see my little brothers in these three and it really hit home because if this was to happen to me, I legit would not know what to do without them. So Andrew was nine years old and was described as being super smart, maybe a little too smart for his own good at times, though. He was an expert at games and could beat you in anything except Guitar Hero, which I get because I completely suck at that game. (laughs) Not even going to attempt to try that. Whenever he lose, he switched the game to something he could beat you in because he wasn't going out like that. And I respect that, too, because once again, he's preaching to the choir. That is me all of the way. So his family also called him the National Inquiry because he knew all of the team. And I'm here for that because he's the oldest. You got to know. You got to know what's going on. He listening to everything his parents talking about. Exactly. They listen to the parents and go to grandma's house and tell everything. Yes. Or, you know, you go to school and casually talk about it like, so, yeah, my mom said. <laughs> so we have Alexander and he was seven and was a daredevil with no broken bones. Goals. He was what you would consider your typical that boy. <laughs> he do things like start water fights with his older sister. And like many of these kids nowadays, he loved phones, real or fake. His favorite phone was his grandpa's phone, and it came with a bell clip. So you can imagine him like walking around a house strutting his stuff. <laughs> Alexander was just a loving boy who likes to sit in your lap and just talk to you, just have a conversation. The youngest brother, Tanner, who was five, he was a little storyteller. And his imagination was completely out of his out of this world. And you can imagine that from a five-year-old. Right. Like, they're just coming up with anything. He would make up this wild story just for him to say at the end, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he was a cuddly little guy, but he didn't play about sharing his mom with anyone else. If his sister would sit on their mom's lap, Tanner would see this and rush over, knock her off the lap, and be like, no, look, this is my spot. This is you, you, I don't know what you got going on, but this spot is taken for him. Like every little brother, Tanner hated being left out, and he tried to keep up with the big dogs. He loved to play Uno Moo, but he lost one time, and the little guy's been cheating ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner played soccer growing up. Andrew was the forward, Alexander was the goalie, and Tanner just tried to keep up on the field, (laughs) which when I played soccer, that was literally the definition of me. I didn't know if that was like a a position, but I was like, I'll just Just run around and keep up with the team, keep the traffic going smoothly because, you know, I don't want to back it up just standing here. 
um, it pretty much also described high school together too. Me and you in gym class, like yep. we just oh. ran in circles to keep up. Like <laughs> made a lot of sense. A so, lot of fake ass motels. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you 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 really can't be having this many. Like you know, sometimes you're concerned, but you're like, at this whole point, there's a there's a thing going on now. Like I'm on to you. <laughs> I'm like, look, because you're supposed to be my partner <laughs> in this stuff. And she's over there in the corner fake wheezing. And I'm like, <laughs> get, get your life together. <laughs> so the boys did good in school and they all enjoyed it. But what they enjoyed more was after school going over to their grandparents' house to hang out. They would do chores and play games while there. The boys loved being outside. They would ride horses, ride bikes and four-wheelers, swim, and play with the neighborhood kids. Pretty much lived their best lives, and they were really living their best life, Aaliyah, once they learned how to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. They were the hot commodity. Like, you couldn't tell them nothing. <laughs> so. Like, oh, your mama fixed your lunch? I fixed my own lunch. I made my own lunch today. And I made my brother's. Because, <laughs> you know, I remember when I learned how to make a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Oh, I thought I was the bee's knees. I was like, you can't tell me nothing. Oh, like, what you want to eat? Oh, I got it. I already made me my dinner. Like, you just. You're on top of the world. So this story takes place a little time before Black Friday when the boys went missing. To be honest, I want to say it started back when John returned to his hometown for a high school reunion back in September of 2010. When John returned from his reunion, he brought to Tanya, his wife, the idea of the whole family moving down to Florida. John said he would be able to make more money and he would also be closer to his family. His father, mom, and sister who still lived in Jackson, you know, he was like, I miss them. And, you know, the boys right. should be able to see them more often. But Tanya was, Tanya, I'm so sorry, Tanya wasn't going for it and tried to shut it down. The boys' entire lives have been in Marinci. Why would I just pick them up pick and them up move and them? Move. Yeah, so Tanya's like, I don't see the point in, you know, just uprooting their just lives visit. right now. Yeah, like we can Let still visit. visit and different like, things like that. And it's like, John, you have family in Michigan too, so it's not like the boys are completely cut off from, you know, from, your family. from family. You yeah, see your family yeah. so it's not like it's just a like one-sided thing. Yeah. But John really pushed the idea. He really believed this move to Florida would be the best thing for them. So one day, John decides to take things in his own hands. <laughs> And it's kind of like he was going to show Tanya how being in Florida can be great for the boys. So Tanya dropped the boys off to go to school like she did every day. The boys had their book bags with their medicine in it ready to go to their grandparents' house after school. Not too long after Tanya drops the boys off to school, John picks the boys up and tells the office the whole family is going on family vacation and they will be back in a week. What? Yeah. This seems a little suspicious to the school, so they're like, hey, we're going to call the mom, Tanya, and just to verify Makes this. Sense. Tanya immediately calls John and, said, and confronts him about this. Like, what are you doing with, my, with, with the kids? Where are you going? He then tells Tanya that he's going to take the boys on a vacation for a week to Florida. Tanya argues that school just started and that the boys don't need to be missing school like that, especially this early in the school year. He couldn't do his experiment in the summertime you couldn't do this on a weekend on friday to sunday like if they're just going to visit then and then at the same time school just started these boys had a whole summer i'm saying like he couldn't he couldn't do his experiment in the middle of the summer yeah like in july yeah not when the boys are like just not starting school so 
John tells her that I'll just enroll the boys in school when we get there. For and a this, week. Yeah, and this confuses Tanya because she's like, that isn't considered a vacation at that point. And also, you take, them to va- take them on vacation and make them go to school. Yeah, I, oh, I would be so mad. Like, yeah, we're going to Florida. Oh, Disney World. Nah, you gotta go to yeah, school. Yeah, no, I enrolled you. We going to Disney World. Like, excuse you. So she's also saying, like, John, this is not how school works. You can't just you can't just enroll them for a a, a, week. a week. And then I'm, sometimes that process takes a lot longer than just a day. Like I've been I've been, I've been out of school because I'm like I'm waiting to be enrolled. Like it's just not as quick all the time. You got to fax paperwork and all this other stuff. And then the thing is, if you just pick it up and going, you didn't like. I'm guessing you didn't th- like put the, all of that into thought. So Tanya decides to contact her lawyer for some advice. The lawyer ends up telling her that to prevent John from leaving the state with the boys, Tanya needs to file for divorce and then file for emergency custody. It's somehow made known that John also contacted a lawyer earlier that day before picking up the boys. And just so happened, it's the same lawyer that Tanya contacted. Talk about a small world. So John consulted with this lawyer earlier that day, but he didn't pay him yet. So he was technically not working as his lawyer he yet. Wasn't yeah. His lawyer. So with Tanya knowing this information, she sends her daughters immediately to go to the lawyer's office, gets the paperwork mm-hmm. going, get all this stuff, you know, get the ball rolling. Tanya calls John back and attempts to stall him. She doesn't want him. She doesn't need him just straight going straight to Florida with the boys. She convinces him to come back to the house to get the paperwork for the boys in since you're going to register them in school. And there's no way you're going to be able to do that without any of this, you know, any of this important information like their birth certificates. John falls for this and makes his way back to the house. (laughs) Tanya stalls as she pretends to look for paperwork for the boys. While waiting for Tanya to find the papers, the lawyer calls John and informs him, I am not allowed to represent you because... Tanya has beat you to the punch. Like, I just got paid. I can't represent you. (laughs) John is pissed at this point. He's pissed. He begins to yell. I feel like it's like a protection thing, the lawyer, especially because he knew what was going on. He shouldn't have called. Yeah, he should have waited. He begins to yell, and he makes this big scene. Tanner cowered behind his mom as his dad is just going off. He then calls for Andrew and Alexander, who are playing outside in a front yard at the time. And he tells them to get in the van. The boys do as they're told, and John speeds out of the driveway, almost hitting Tanya's little sister to kneel in the process. And guess what? Tanya's daughters literally pulled up a minute after John pulled off. Wow. With the officer to serve John the papers. Right. Literally a minute, a minute later. The next day, it's Tanya's birthday, and she gets a call from the boys in Florida. They seem to be having a good time and to be safe. They went on about how they had went swimming and that they were staying with their dad's friend, Hillary. Now, Tanya's like, you guys aren't staying with grandma and granddad. And they're like, no, it's Hillary we're staying with. what's the point of going to be with your family? And then you go take them to stay with some lady. Yeah. And apparently he hooked up with this Hillary chick. Not hooked up, but like they connected at this um, high school reunion they went to. And so... But still, you said you were going to be closer to family and ABCD. Why aren't the boys with grandma, you know, at grandparents' house? Tanya immediately makes her way to Florida to get her boys. And once there, she notifies the police of what's going on and how she filed for emergency custody back in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Tanya was able to get the boys, but a judge wanted to see John and Tanya before they left. 
Tanya knew the meeting was harmless, but something told her to get a lawyer anyway. And you mm-hmm. always go with your gut feeling. Thank goodness she did, though, because when she walked into the meeting with the judge that next day, John not only had a lawyer with him, but he was ready to throw Tanya under the bus by any means necessary. See, Tanya was charged with having a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old boy in 1998. And John used this as much as he could, not in just this situation, but the entire investigation. John went on to say that he believed that Tanya was sexually abusing the boys and that he brought them to Florida to protect them from Tanya. Yeah, so, and the thing is, it's just like this is coming out of nowhere. Tanya was straight up with her lawyer before they even got there. And so he already knew what was up. Mm-hmm. So he jumps in, defends her from these attacks. The judge says, hey, look, you both need to leave out of Florida immediately. Like, just, just leave. Just go. Yeah. And you guys will continue to have joint custody until you get back to the Michigan State borderline. And once you get there, that's when the emergency custody will take effect and the boys must be in Tanya's possession. So they need to be in the car with Tanya so at that time. Of course, he's not going to take them. Yeah. <laughs> so once back in Michigan, Tanya decides to go through with the divorce. But John wants to be together. He said that the boys needed to see their father on a daily basis and everything like that. But this was a situation that didn't need to be discussed. Tanya felt betrayed not by not once by John, but by, twice. One for taking the boys to Florida without her permission, and second bringing up her past against her like that, and even accusing her of sexually abusing her own her sons. Own yeah. So how can you just move on from that with someone and work on a marriage? John moves not too far from the boys, like close enough where they can tell if John's van is in the driveway. Close. <laughs> That's with my grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> My grandma's like, hey, who's that at your house? Hey, come on. <laughs> Personal space. <laughs> you didn't want to be bothered. Like, you know, like, <laughs> but no, that's like extremely close. But I guess if he's saying like he's doing this to be close to the boys, mm-hmm. then that's it actually worked out perfectly in the, you know, in that factor. So I couldn't imagine really living that close to my ex. Right. I really couldn't, like, especially with Tanya. Like, you guys are like, he's like the next block over. So Tanya really didn't want to let the boys be alone with John, but her lawyer mentioned that it would look good when they went to court for the divorce divorce if the judge seen that Tanya was allowing John visitations with the Mm -hmm. boys. So she was like, "Okay, fine. If it makes me look good, I'll do it. So before I get into the case, I want to tell you a little about John so we know who we're dealing with. And I actually have a picture of John and it's like a lot more so in um, his older years. And this is him. He, I think this is a picture of him when he is um, in jail. You can tell. <clears throat> yeah. And he, they said that, like, you know, when he went in, once he was allowed to have, like, once he started having visitors, they were like, this guy looks completely different from, you know, Stress when he went in. Yeah. Guilt. guilt. It does something to us all. So John Russell Skelton was born on November 22nd, 1971. He was raised in Jackson, Florida after high school. He went into the Army, and that caused him to move around a lot. So eventually he moved to Michigan to be with the family he had there, but he ended up staying after meeting and marrying Tanya in 2002. They had their first kid, and every two two years after that, they had another boy until they got the three little handsome guys, and he referred to them as his bubbies. Mm -hmm. 
Um, John was previously married before, and he had a daughter in that marriage. After the divorce, his ex-wife moved to another state, which really limited how much he got to see his daughter. This could be a reason John wanted to stay with Tanya in fear of not being able to see his Mm -hmm. boys again. John was described by many people to be very intelligent, intelligent enough to pull something off like this. Like this. Tanya had worked out with John that he would get the boys for Thanksgiving that year. He would pick the boys up from their grandparents' home at 5 p.m. and bring the boys home Black Friday at 3 p.m. He wanted more time prior to this, and Tanya was just like, no, because a week or so prior to, you know, the making this agreement, John had told the boys that mommy had been in jail before for doing wrong things with, you know, Someone That's younger. Yeah. Your, your kids, that, especially that young. Right. And so you can see why Tanya was not having it. Like, mm-hmm. you you get the boys for this time and you're not even acting right. So when John had the boys, he called Tanya and begged her to get back together and to just forget about the divorce. And once again, Tanya says, no, we, we can't. We're not, I don't see this happening. Mm-hmm. So she could hear the boys in the back laughing and playing and having a good time. So, you know, she can hear, like, the boys are still safe. Right. So she's not worried. She has no reason to be worried about this. You know, that's their father. You have you don't think that you really would have to be worried about things about like that? Father. Yeah, about that. They're with their dad. So on Friday, Tanya decides to call John to see if there was any way she can get the boys a little early because she still wanted to celebrate Thanksgiving with them. Just like even if it was just like a, even if it was a day after, like, right. I just want to spend, you know, the holiday with them. When she called John, he told her that he and the boys weren't home and that they had went over to some friend's house to eat for Thanksgiving. Tanya could see John's see van the in, the dri- in the driveway, though. And I have a picture of, dr- uh, of his van. And it's like a blue little family van. And, um... Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a little simple van blue. Like, it's like you a know, dark you blue. You can tell who's it is. You can tell it's his car. Yeah, you know his car. You can spot this from anywhere. Exactly. So, <laughs> it's like, don't even lie to me like this. So, when she asked him about this, he said, oh, well, my friend picked this up because I didn't feel like driving. Okay. Makes sense. She didn't, Tanya didn't find a re- like, didn't have a reason to not believe him. So, she's just like, okay, guys, give me a call once you get back. Time goes by and Tanya reaches out again to John and his story changes. He tells Tanya he has a confession. He said, hey, I'm actually at home. And the boys are over at my friend's house. He said that during a Thanksgiving dinner, the boys really clicked with the kids there and they wanted the boys to stay the night and have a sleepover. He said that the boys were uh, with his friend Joanne and that he had met her by helping her with her car alongside the road um, a while back. And they just stayed in touch. And she was very nice and had a nice family and everything like that. It's still suspect. You, You have to talk to the mother about that. She doesn't know this person. Mm hmm. Exactly. And, you just, and they're young boys. Yeah. And it's just like, even if you're like, okay, they are going to stay the night. Hey, the boys are going to be staying. Just so like, you know, we're on the same page. So Tanya still didn't see anything wrong with this. She asked John, so what time does she plan on bringing the boys home? And at, John wasn't even sure of that. She also asked him like, hey, so when she do bring the boys home, is she dropping them off at your house and you bring them to me? Or is she just going to straight bring them to me? John also didn't know if that was, you know, what was going on with that. These she, are young boys. These are, this is stuff. Yeah. You, 
you need to know. Yeah, and they're like they're the the oldest is nine, nine, seven, and five. Right, they're young. This is stuff you exactly. You need to know. Yeah, so she even offered to get the boys from Joanne and say, "Hey, I'll you know I'll even meet her somewhere, or I'll go pick the boys up. Where you know where are they?" And he just danced around. He danced around the topic, never really giving her like an exact answer, like not giving much of anything. The next call she gets from John, he tells her he is on his way to the hospital over a leg injury due to a suicide attempt. <laughs> yeah. When Tanya hears this, she instantly gets worried. Not because of John, but with John on his way to the hospital, who are going to get the boys from this Joanne chick? Where are the boys at? And also, how do you sustain an injury, a leg injury from a how suicide attempt? And later on, he ends up going and saying, like, it wasn't a suicide attempt. Although they were like, he tried to use a string that was, like, super thin, and then he fell off, and it hit his leg, or something like that. I don't really know. So Tanya contacts her lawyer about what's going on, and he advises her to wait until the drop-off time, 3 p.m. And if the boys are not there by then, she can go to the police. So she waited and waited until 3 p.m. And when 301 came and there was still no signs of the boys, she immediately alerted the police. An Amber Alert was put out instantly. And the state police, along with the FBI, began to search for the Skelton brothers. Tanya's lawyer also advised Tanya not to go to John's home because it may be a crime scene. Mm -hmm. But Tanya hated just sitting there with, you know, just waiting for her boys to get home. She needed to do something. At this point, I'm sure he done cleaned everything up by now. So you would think that Tanya gets to his house anyway, but she couldn't even open the door because something was something big was blocking it. She called out to the boys to hope that maybe they're in the house and that they'll respond to her. But she heard nothing. When this was a dead end, she went back to the house and case this Joanne lady did bring the boys home. She'd be there. But no Joanne ever turned up and neither did the boys. An investigation breaks out, and John, of course, is in the spotlight. They want to know who is this Joanne lady to. The one that John said had the boys last for Thanksgiving and was supposed to bring them home. For all police, no. Joanne, about Joanne, is that John had met her while he was helping her with her car. Tanya has said that a Joanne Taylor actually added her on this mom app she was using called Cafe Mom, but later, that turned out to be John pretending to be a Joanne Taylor, which it doesn't make sense and it doesn't help his case. It doesn't help him out it at all. It doesn't help him at all. At all. There was possibly a sighting of the boys, though, Aaliyah, with a woman that could have been a Joanne Taylor in Sandusky, Ohio, at a donut shop. The cashier noted that the boys didn't want to go into the donut shop. They were real hesitant. They all looked tired and hungry, and the only reason the lady assumed that it was the boys was because the lady who had the boys referred to the youngest as Tanner. Wow. She told him to hurry up and pick something. The lady didn't know that the boys were missing at the time until after the holiday. This literally was like right after this happened. And even then, she hesitated to tell them because she wasn't sure of what she had saw. Eventually, her manager convinced her to call in. The police looked into this, but the more they looked, they could not find a Joanne anywhere. Which makes me think that even if there was a woman that played a part in this, she probably gave John the wrong name. Or it, she that he just did not give. She He made up the name himself. Yeah. So they couldn't find it. Yeah. And that's what because I was I'm I sure thought about it's too. somebody he knew. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
And detectives then looked at John's phone to see if they can get find anything off of that. They noticed that at 4.29 in the morning, John's phone pinged 3.3 miles from his home. Then his phone pinged again at 5 a.m. at Holiday City. Then his phone either dies or he turns it off. And either way, we know the location, the GPS is shut off. Mm -hmm. His phone then gets active again at 6.46 a.m. And he was back at his house. Wow. This left a nice time gap for him to have done something with the boys. Mm -hmm. When John came back to the house, he was very active on his phone. He even made a status saying how he hoped God and Tanya can forgive him for what he has done. Wow. He also dropped a lot of his personal items off to a family member because he didn't think he'd be around long. What? Suspect. So when police finally searched the inside of John's home, they couldn't believe the state of his home. There were broken items everywhere. There were broken dishes, broken furniture, and even cords cut. There were knife gashes in the mattresses in the room. Police retrieve John's laptop and looks at his search history and finds something strange. John had made two searches the last night the boys were with him. One, can you break someone's neck with your bare hands? What? And two, can rat poison kill kids? John said in his defense that he and the boys were watching a karate movie that night, and the boys became curious about it when they saw those kind of deaths in the characters, so they decided to look it up. Really? Yeah. Because then, even then, it's like, as the adult, we know. You're just going to say, yes, it'll kill you. Don't do it. Because, okay, you look it up and it says no. Then a kid going to try it. Yeah. It challenge like accepted. A, go to school. My daddy said that if you <laughs> eat that right there, that's over there in the corner, nothing will happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, and you, you can just shut, you could have easily shut those down. Like, it was just a weird search, uh, search history, you know, search I don't know. Something's, it's just really weird to search, especially the boys go missing in that same time period. Right. So John's side of things starts months back when he said he tried to report the sexual abuse that he suspected between Tanya and the boys. He said that the chief of the police would not accept his report at the time. And in a courtroom in 2011, John stated that he felt like the system failed him and that if he would have had a cho- had a, uh, had if the police would have chose to do their duties instead of being a friend to Tanya, he wouldn't have had to resort to what he did okay. when it came to the boys. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. So John says that the boys one day told him that Tanya has been, quote-unquote, sexing them, which what? I don't even know what that means. He then told his parents about this, and that's when he said he tried to make a report. John said that after helping Joanne, they kept in touch, and she told him she knew of this group called the Underground Sanctuary that will take care of the boys for him to protect them from Tanya. Supposedly, after the boys had dinner that night, a few members from the group were going to pick the boys up, and John was under the impression that this was just a trial run and he'll get the boys back. Because this is like a really? Netflix account. Right. You get a week. <laughs> yeah, and that's like... I don't that it was just like his story just like literally all over the place right right now. And it changes so many times in this case that it's ridiculous. Like I was getting whiplash just like just trying to keep yeah, trying to keep up. So on the boys last day with John, he made their favorite food, fried chicken, and they ate a cake that John had made specially for them. They watched that karate movie I was talking about the night together. 
And John then told the boys that they would be going to live with a better family for a while. A few members from this group by the name of Joanne, Virgil, Sue, and Elijah came to pick the boys up in a van. John wrapped the boys in the blanket, gave them each a toy, and watched as they drove off with the boys into the night. John then told police that the boys were given to the Amish community to be raised. But although members in the Amish community lived away from mainstream, they still are aware of the news that go on. And if the boys were dropped off into the Amish community in on the Indiana and Ohio borderline, like he said, the police would have definitely been alerted or something like this. Although John's story changed so many times over the years, he did go back and say he regretted giving the boys away in the first place. Because he did not have, like, full custody of the kids, mm-hmm. if he was giving them some, some type of organization, he would still need her signature, yeah. her ID for her to be there. Yeah, you would need something. You you, you just can't just drop kids off to somebody. Right. Yeah, like, especially if this is, like, an organization, like you're saying. I would see them having, like, a sister or something. Like, who do I contact when, you know, A, B, C, D? How do I know if you're not? How do I know if you're even their parents? this is a quote-unquote trial run. Right. So it just doesn't make sense. You would need, who else else is allowed to pick them up? Emergency contacts. Yeah. So it's just, it's a typical application process. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Like, it just, it really doesn't make sense. So a man by the name of Mose Gingrich he also comes up. John said that when the boys were ready to be found, this is the man that will contact John. Police were actually able to track this man down. Mose did have an organization called the Underground Railroad that helped new Amish community members. Around the time, John produced the story of this happening to the boys. Mose had a show on TV that talked about the work of the Underground Railroad. Mose actually met face to face with John and he told John that he had no idea who his sons were until six months prior to meeting him. And this was seven years after the incident even took place. Also, something that Mose didn't key John in on at the time. John was asked when he found out about the group, when exactly did he find out about the group? And he said back in 2010. Mose revealed that he didn't go public with his group until 2012 when his show went public. So John just seemed mind blown by the fact that Mose had no idea who the boys were. And for the first time, John was starting to feel like things might not have went well. After meeting with John, Mose stated that John was a smooth guy and very intelligent, which this keep coming up that people are just saying that this guy is like really intelligent. Smart and could have pulled this off. Yeah. John's family, of course, had an input on things. His family was upset with how John handled things with the police when he went to report the supposed child abuse with Tanya. Which I want to add, when people in the community were asked about this, they said it was clear that the boys were loved by their mom and they couldn't imagine her harming them at all. John's dad stated that John should have just went straight to the state police instead of the local police when things didn't, you know, work out in his favor. John's dad believed that when the boys become of legal age, the real story of what happened will come out as well. And although he isn't sure if this is when just the oldest one turns 18 or when they all turn 18, John's father also shared that one day while he was out getting gas, someone came up from behind him and told him not to turn around. He then states that the boys are safe and that he shouldn't worry. He responded by just simply saying, okay, and went on about his day. 
John's mom believed that the boys were 100% safe, but she also believed that what John did was stupid and irresponsible. His mom went on about how Tanya would play with John's emotions when it came to the boys. She said Tanya would call John over on Sunday nights to stay the night, but would make him leave in the morning before the boys would wake up. Which I kind of can see where she just doesn't want to play with the boys' head. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, so I'm, yeah, I can see. see why she did that, like, to protect the boys, I guess. And then she would tell him a few days later that he wasn't going to be allowed to see the boys at all. That's messed up. Yeah. His mom believed this is the emotional stress that caused him to do what he did. His mom believes this whole situation. John was mistreated by the police, being kept in isolation in prison for years. Supposedly, he was drugged when the police interrogated him. And when being interrogated, he was not allowed to eat, sleep, or use the restroom. So that's what John claims. (laughs) John's sister believes that even growing up, John was the brains of the family. She would be the she was the physical sibling while John was the thinker. He didn't he wasn't really a fighter. She definitely believed that her boy her brother is capable of doing something like this though. She also believes that Tanya did molest the boys as well. John's side of the family only contacted Tanya one time after the boys' disappearance, which kind of seems strange in itself, but I'm just taking it that they aren't really close. Especially with all these comments that they're making towards her. With the things they were saying and their stuff like that going public. But I think I would still check on her. Reach out because... You don't know where her kids are. She doesn't know where her kids are. I think I would check on her. Yeah, because at the end of the day, they all are family. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we're all missing them right now. Like, they're not just missing to me. because that's her. That's their mother. That's her kids. Yeah. So... Nine years later, a discovery was made in Missoula, Montana, which really confused police. And Michigan State Police didn't even consider Montana in their radar when they're looking for the boys. But when the remains were found of three kids that fit the age range of the boys, they linked up to find out if these were the remains of the Skelton brothers. The owner of the house hired a cleaning team to clean the house after the two previous tenants um, had uh, left. While the cleaning team were cleaning up, they came across a set of bones. At the time of death, the bones were estimated to be around the ages 2 to 4, 5 to 8, and 6 to 10. The bones were tested at the University of North Texas. When the discovery went public, Tanya didn't want to make a comment to the public, but that's completely understandable. Yeah, it's completely understandable. The news was something that... Definitely taking them all by surprise. They weren't expecting to have a um to 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 find bones. Like mm-hmm. they were kind of still holding holding out that maybe John did give these boys to someone. So John watched from prison as the news played out on the TV. He went on to say this news had an f- effect on his safety in the prison. Prisoners, yeah. yeah, I mean, what did you expect? Prisoners began to call him a child killer and a monster. He even went further to say that some people stopped talking to him. What do you expect? Yeah. After six months of waiting, the results came back negative for being a Skelton Brothers. Nine years after the disappearance of the boys, a credible tip came in from a lady who claims to have seen John at a pond with his van the morning John's phone pinged in that area. Police had always considered this area a hot zone, but they never searched it. 
Police used cadaver dogs and side scanner sonars to look for the boys on the water. A land search with search dogs took place as well, but nothing was found. And they were just as close to finding the boys as they were before the search. The boys are still missing, and the boys' family, along with detectives, are not giving up hope of bringing the boys home. I'm going to post on our website some age-progressed photos of the boys, just so that we all can be on a lookout for these boys. Now, we're not sure how accurate these are of the boys because of many factors like their hair color and things can be changed. But it gives you a general idea. And to be honest, I'm really impressed with the technology these days. And it amazes yeah. me because it looks as if you're looking at boy, the boys' school pictures. Like school pictures. Yeah, their school pictures over the years. If you have any information on this case, please contact the Marinci Police at 517 458 7104. And I also want to give a huge shout out to the podcast Shattered, who dedicated an entire season to the Skelton case. Please be sure to listen to their episodes on these brothers. They have interviews with John and Tanya and many other people who played a part in this case as well. Thank you for listening to Crime in the Mint. You can find the transcript, pictures we've discussed, and the links to all of our references on our website at www.crimeinthemint.com. There you can also find the links to our social media. If you have a case you'd like us to discuss, go to the go to the contact us page of the website and leave a suggestion. Each month we'll choose one of one suggestion for an episode. <laughs>